Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lay Film. My name is Kevin, one of the co-hosts, and with me today we have... Patrick. And in this series we're covering all of the episodes of Twin Peaks. For this uh, run we're doing season one, and today we are talking about episode two, titled Traces to Nowhere. In the previous episode, we ended on, I want to say it's a shot of somebody uncovering one half of the heart necklace uh, at the scene where James and Donna were last seen burying it. And it sort of had this uh, very surreal tone where Sarah can almost sense that somebody has found it or something's going on and it ends with like a shriek. and. With this episode, it sort of starts out on a very different note. Uh, I, I, Pat, what do you think about like the tone of this one starting up so far? I think it's a part of the show's charm. I, I like the not flip flopping, but the the more comedic, grounded, endearing moments. Like a, it's like a, it's something uncommon, but it feels genuine for the characters, and it makes you a little, it makes you in, it makes you walk into the community a little bit. Like a, like Cooper is a great example of like just a, a brilliant character, and a part of his brilliance is moments like this intro, where he's doing something out of the ordinary. And it's not for the sake of doing it out of the ordinary. It's just completely believable that he would be doing this. Doesn't it start with him? I mean, it's like these slow creeping shots into the Great Northern, and he has on these inversion uh, anklets, I want to say. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, a he's portable. Like... Wait, what were you saying? It's like a portable like sit-up device or hanging device <laughs> hanging setup device <laughs> yeah I, i've like seen those before in the past and i i wanted to like well i looked it up a little bit beforehand and apparently they can help with posture and relieving back pain and yeah once again like to me that seems totally believable that cooper would go out of his way to start like this morning ritual of making sure that his posture is intact and like all these other things to set himself up for success for the day and even like debriefing Diane on all the small little details uh, that happened by the you know when he actually did check into the Great Northern up until when he woke up <laughs> and I, I love his I love his brief little bit of dialogue where he's like where it's kind of like a carryover from the previous one where he's like yep uh, the Great Northern checks out. Uh, they had great, great accommodations for reasonably prices or whatever. <laughs> There's so many. Yeah, it, che it checks all the boxes he said he was looking for. Mm -hmm. Just such a. It's it's a great moment you wouldn't get in a normal, a more normal show, especially back then. And like, yeah, it's just one of the great endearing parts of the show that pulls you in so that the scary hand, gloved hand grabbing the locket <laughs> stuff can hit a little more, I think. Mm -hmm. 
I, I think that um, one of the other strong factors that helps ease this more lighthearted atmosphere into the show is definitely the music. Uh, I think that it starts off with like uh, the more upbeat like drumming where it's like just the snare. It, it sounds like very jazzy and I, I, I love when that just how quickly it's establishing itself as one of the show's motifs to where once you hear that music, it's not necessarily as scary. It's not necessarily as daunting. And uh, then I want to say that once we get outside of... Oh no! <laughs> there's there's a brief little moment in the... Uh, when Cooper is hanging upside down and uh, recording this little tape for Diane. He goes into like this little tiny thought about JFK and how like he was thinking about the relationship between uh, Marilyn Monroe and uh, the Kennedys and who really shot JFK. It reminds me of uh, what's that one show where it had like the tagline of who shot JR? Was it Nashville? It was a uh, no, it wasn't Nashville. It was Dallas. Yeah, Dallas, Dallas. That's the one. I thought Nashville. <laughs> See, what is Nashville? I'm trying to remember what that is. <laughs> but I, I like, I, I like how they're uh, tying in that sort of a dialogue, uh, because it, it's really, it, it reminds me of what Ben's was talking about in the previous episode, where he loved how much of a, how much of a. Um, influence soap operas were on this show and how they're how it's kind of like revising some of those tropes and it's like right at the beginning we're already getting just a little taste of that mystery once more of who of who shot JFK uh who shot JR and like who killed Laura Palmer it's like I don't know it's even even in the lighter moments there's still like this lingering sensation of mystery I love the uh, it's, it's it's part of his established or endearing character to me. But I love Cooper's. Uh, he's like your conventional FBI guy. You're before the X Files. It's so endearing to have a like mysticism, a mystic, weird not weird but like he's not conventional. He's not how you would expect like a hard boiled law and order type like a more conventional show. He'd be like snappy and to the point. He wouldn't be hanging upside down to get his posture good for the day and then talk to his his uh, secretary or whatever about a JFK conspiracy theory because like he's a part of the institutions that probably killed JFK. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, it's just so yeah. endearing. Before, before the Mulder, there's Cooper. And I think there's like a direct connection between those two great characters yes i i definitely gotta agree i'm i'm also a, a huge fan of x files and i love what you were just talking about in terms of like the dynamics between like cooper and Mulder, and how cooper kind of paved the way for this uh more pensive more uh less constricted by the i guess by the bureau bureaucracy of uh, conditioning when it comes to like how you're supposed to approach a case, um, like he he allows himself to have sort of these like uh, mystical thoughts and modus operandi 
uh, involved with the way that he, you know, goes about these investigations. And I love how in tune he is with it as well. And yeah, Pat, I, I definitely got to agree. He did sort of pave the way for Mulder to, I guess, em really embellish those qualities, but take it like even a step further. And it's, I, I also really enjoy the fact that we have somebody who is not necessarily uh, very vulgar or very macho or brooding or anything. He's, he's a very chipper individual who has this very unique fascination with light and dark aspects of life and is just trying to find his own way in the world while also preserving his his authenticity and I love that about Cooper um but uh as we as we uh transition outside of uh Cooper's stay at the Great Northern we see this this brilliant scene that perfectly encapsulates the show where Cooper is sitting in in the uh sort of the cafe of the Great Northern and then he stops the the waitress who's pouring his cup of coffee to give his own like take on it and then he gives that classic line where he says uh excuse me uh this is a damn fine cup of coffee <laughs> and and then uh we have Audrey who appears And I think, we, I think Audrey's changed a little bit from the pilot, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. There's a couple changes, and isn't that I, I think later on there's like an in-universe explanation that I like. But yeah, Audrey. I was just saying, on this rewatch, I noticed for sure Audrey's a hair change. Mm. Not that drastic. Every time I watch the pilot for the first time, it's like a good deal shorter. I believe, or I feel, than it is in this next episode that we're on now. Or am I crazy? You know, now, no, now that you mention it, that's that's definitely ringing a bell for me because I remember when I was trying to grab uh, screenshots for the first episode to post and stuff, I didn't remember Audrey looking like that. Uh, at least, like, my own image of her throughout, like, seasons one and two. And... I was kind of like, oh, she has short hair in this episode. That's really strange. I, uh, yeah. So I, I definitely think that you're onto something with that, Pat. But uh, we have this little... This little... Uh, touch of what Audrey is actually going for and like what her character is... What her role is at the Great Northern. And I, I kind of equate her to being like a snake like slithering around in a way like not necessarily in like a malicious way but she's very sneaky and conniving at times and uh she i i also think that she's a bit chaotic neutral as well or chaotic good maybe um but she has like a conversation with cooper and this is the first intro that we have between the two and it's sort of like airing on the side of this strange pull between the two and then we transition to the sheriff's department where we see the construction going on of uh, some people removing like a glass wall or something like that yeah um, that's where that feels like one of the other changes with the pilot mm -hmm. where they're quickly explaining it 
so you don't care if you care about like the sheriff station looking a little different. Mm-hmm. So I think there was like a glass wall or waiting room. But yeah, we or they're building one. I can't remember which way it is, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's 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 a great little detail of like why not why, but and it's just a good little detail of like instead of just like a more straight laced procedural and just having the characters walk in, there's like energy to the scene. Mm-hmm. They're like constructing the set. Like, yeah, it's it feels like yeah, it feels like he cares. Mm-hmm. Lynch and Frost care enough to go like, oh, we're changing stuff from our original pilot. I don't want to just have changes happen and no one acknowledges them. Let's just, you know, force something in or add some energy to the scene. Yeah, it, it reminds me of what you were saying earlier about how this episode has that sort of feeling of, you know, being a member of the community and sort of like walking into the town almost like a Cooper-like figure. Um, And this scene definitely has that exact same feeling where it's... We were sort of talking about it in the previous episode where during the day, it's sort of like the safe, the safe environment of uh, being in Twin Peaks. And even with like Ronette coming across the bridge after that really traumatic incident of her being in the train car with Laura, like we sort of see her walking back into the safety of the morning. Um, this this episode so far has the it's like what to expect from the show moving forward. I, I feel like it's much more dialed in in terms of uh, the motions and the tasks that you see people doing throughout the day of just living their day to day lives and. Yes, uh, I, I agree that this scene has like a bunch of really nice energy uh, going into it. Just seeing like, you know, oh, there's probably like, they probably explain it as, oh, there's like some sort of obstruction. We're going to just remove it. And, you know, we put in a work order or something like that. And yeah, it, it is nice to like see that stuff going on in camera rather than explained through like dialogue or something like that. And there's also like a yet another comedic moment where we see Cooper going past and then Lucy is like trying to explain like where Truman is but she can't because her she's like her mouth is like filled with like a bite of like donut <laughs> and she's like wanting to over explain but she can't um and then we just see Cooper going a million miles an hour cuz he has like a very set agenda and he just like unleashes like the entire schedule to Truman after he's like just taken like a massive bite from a donut. And then he's like, I'm, I'm sorry, Harry, but I really have to urinate. And, and like Truman's just trying to like process all of that whirlwind of uh, dialogue that Cooper unleashed on him. But yeah, he's like nodding the whole time as he's like trying to squeeze bites in between Cooper's <laughs> No, yeah, I love I yeah, it, I definitely agree with what you said about we're getting a lot more of the uh, the daytime experience and the, the the people. This feels like an episode where it's 99 percent uh, the day side of Twin Peaks and we're, we're seeing more of the original concept of the show 
not original concept, but like more of the uh, stuff people enjoy and the creators. I think Lynch was aspiring to achieve in that like it's it's we're getting like a soap opera, but it has more weight. Mm-hmm. It has more. We get more character interactions. We get to see relationships. We yeah, we see like the important stuff to normal people, which isn't solving murders or big life or death situations. It's more small things of like, oh, this, you know, young love, uh, a failed marriage, relationship between a father and son. You get all the small stuff that is given gravity that makes the show feel very lived in and very endearing and real. And one of the reasons I really like a lot of the characters and yeah, just mm-hmm. so many great moments like the Cooper, just he is on fire this whole episode. There's so many great moments where I I just I genuinely love his like investigation style and his yeah, like the FBI persona he creates or the show creates for him is like I, I love this. This isn't like a Law and Order Batman like grabbing a guy by a collar and like threatening to beat him up or vigilantium later on and like hard-boiled stuff like no he's just he's like by his own book eccentric but like just pure wit pure faith he's gonna solve it and you believe he can Mm -hmm. yeah it's like you're you're already like wanting to root for this character and you feel like he he is going to solve it and I, I I also love that part about it too, Pat, because it gives the audience the audience like some sort of um some sort of like values to like aspire to and to have some hope directed towards and to really believe in this specific type of character. Uh because it's like why wouldn't you want to? It's like having like a sense of optimism in a very, you know, dark and disturbing uh, atmosphere that can like creep in at times but it's like Cooper's the light that fends off the darkness in a way and and it even like shows once again in the soundtrack because uh, right after that comedic moment in the sheriff's office we immediately transition back into interviews where Cooper and Truman are interviewing James Hurley and then the music immediately goes from that upbeat sort of jazz uh, uh, score to the dark synth that we hear from Laura's theme. Uh, and it's just sort of like this this undercurrent that sort of like pulls you beneath to like show you what is still lurking beneath everything. <laughs> and I think that the pacing of this episode is also very important because once again it's just setting up the rest of what this series is going to feel like at least in terms of uh the foreseeable future and i i also think that it that this episode shows a bit more of what the what to expect from the dialogue because we get some very strange sort of uh light-hearted but also kind of cheesy but endearing moments between characters throughout it as well with with whatever it is that they're saying to one another and a case in point is when James finally reveals to 
Truman and Cooper that, you know, he may have been lying or withholding information at first, but he now he's just going out on a limb to tell them everything that he knows because he sees no other no other reason to keep this information to himself. Um, and he reveals that he was with Laura the night that she was murdered and and how he had been seeing her for, I want to say, like two months prior to her death and how he was truly in love with her. And we get like this very funny moment where this is the first time that we actually see Laura talking uh, in the series where it's a flashback where her and James are together and she says something along the lines of James, uh, my I feel so happy and like my skin is like so soft and she's like, do you want to know why the reason that is or something like that? And I forget what James says, but it's like really cliche and like corny in a way. Um, or no, he's like, he, he says something. I think he's the one who's like, yeah, your skin's so soft or something like that. And, and yeah, like what Laura responds though is, is so genuine and so authentic that it sort of, it completely shifts that scene from seeming very corny to just very invigorating and very sweet. And it, it sort of reminds me of what Lynch is known for when it comes to writing dialogue that's very tender, uh, which is very prevalent, especially in Blue Velvet between the main characters at times. They, it can be almost like kind of cringy, but then it always ends on a very sweet note. And it's all the more memorable because of that to me. Yeah, what, what's the, the great one? Like, because of Janice, you're going to get it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, like, he comes down from his room with a black eye from like a, a night exploring the dark underbelly of America, <laughs> meeting a gang boss and getting assaulted by him. And yeah, he's like, he wakes up crying and then he goes down and they made breakfast for him. He's all happy. And she wants to keep she wants to ask about the black eye and he's like he just like yeah like he steps into like a protective role and he's like you're, like Janice you're gonna get it if you keep asking me <laughs> like purely as a joke but it's yeah it's just so genuine and funny no yeah I, I, I don't appreciate you you got me thinking about that I don't appreciate that aspect of Lynch and Frost's work enough I feel mm. I'm always more of like oh the sound which again, the show just, yeah, it's, it's a Lynch product where the sound is a major part of the whole creation process. You can tell. Yeah, and I, yeah, Pat, I think you bring up an excellent point with that because I feel that Lynch and a lot of his work, you can, I feel like you can entirely get away with separating the video or the 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 visual aspects from the from the sonic. At, from the sonic uh, aspect. Like you can almost uh, listen to the entirety of Twin Peaks just through audio alone and still pick up on a lot of the same atmosphere that you would get while watching the show. Um, and I think that that's incredibly powerful and that, that goes to show just how much thought and attention goes into the crafting of the, of the audio atmosphere. And 
I mean, I, I wouldn't recommend uh, experiencing the show just through the audio alone, but if you had to, I, I would... I don't think that you would be... I don't know. It'd, be, it'd probably be its own unique experience, is what I'm trying to say. Um, be an interesting review of, like, audio, like, music only, no dialogue, no subtitles. Someone's mm-hmm. first viewing experience. Yeah, like, just because, like... The music and the and a lot of the sound effects, they have this very unique way of flowing into and out of the episodes or the pacing of it all, uh, compared to a lot of other things that I've seen, where it's it's much more direct. Whereas this one, it just feels like it's embodying or it's it's like inner interweaving itself into the the dialogue and everything else. That it's just so seamless at times. And this scene with uh, Laura and James, if I'm, I'm trying to remember the track for the, his memory, but yeah, that's, that's that's a great, like you mentioned, this is a very sweet moment. And uh, on multiple viewings, this this memory stands out a lot. This first one, because <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of other ones that are like this. Because this, this one with Laura has like it's like soft focus everywhere like even on Laura so she has like a little shine a little glow and yeah they're like yeah (laughs) it's it's like the most soap opera the show gets I believe yeah and I, I feel like this this moment is also very important too because once we transition out of the flashback it's revealed that James and Laura's time was sort of it sort of had an expiration date because Laura told James that she wasn't able to see him anymore. I want to say the night that she was murdered. Um, I think that between oh no, uh, Laura ended up sneaking out of her house around like 930 to see James. And then at some sort of like intersection she tells him that she isn't able to see him anymore and then gets off the bike and then disappears into the woods which as we all know as it's all gearing up to be when you're out in the woods at night bad things happen to you um and i a lot of people don't like i i see all over the internet that a lot of people don't really like james's character a whole lot but i i personally love james even some of his more uh, cheesy parts, just because he embodies it so well, and you could see that he is just being his authentic self. Um, and it's it's really cool the way that Cooper interviews or does like sort of a cross examination on uh, James because he leans into some of the moments of, hey, well, you know, you were the last person to see her, and is like really digging deep into sort of like a devil's advocate way of uh, getting of gathering information but he also knows when to ease up because he can tell that James is not the one who did it and uh, we get some really great moments during that entire interview process and then we transition into Cooper and Truman having a conversation with Doc Hayward And this is like one of my, it's just such a brilliant moment with Doc Hayward. And it goes to show how much he genuinely cares about every single 
member of his community because he's I want to say he's like the leading doctor uh for Twin Peaks is that is that right Pat or I think so yeah he's like the town doctor or the most senior doctor in the town like but he's not it's a weird he's a weird position because we there's a hospital with other doctors but he's the one we spend a lot of time with like maybe he's like a I don't know the the feeling I got is like he's like a part of the administration at the hospital at this point Mm -hmm. like more office work than like doctor doctor work but like he still cares enough where he'll do like house calls in his downtime like he's Mm -hmm. kind of like the idealized hospital bureaucrat versus probably reality where it's like you know he's he's making the hospital run is the vibe I get and then he'll still go to the school and talk to the kids and he'll still go to like an older person's house without insurance and just give them a quick checkup mm-hmm. that's the feeling I get from Hayward yeah and he he even like embellishes that those qualities by saying how he wasn't able to perform the autopsy on Laura himself because he laments that he was the one who brought her or helped bring her into this world and to see her now gone it's just taking a huge toll on his on his well-being and he ended up bringing somebody else in to lead the autopsy while he assisted and he details a lot of the a lot of the um wounds and uh other other things that happened to her during the night that she was murdered he he mentions how there were bite marks on her uh she ended up having sex with at least three people three different people that night and how she has a bunch of small lesions across her uh, especially at the wrists where she was bound and it's sort of painting this very dark and traumatizing uh set of events that happened to her and it's it's just adding more more thread to the tapestry that you know of unraveling this murder that uh, is is sort of taking the town by storm and that I feel like uh, with this episode it, it's not only setting up more of what to expect throughout the town but also giving more providing more details into what how Laura spent her time uh, in like a day-to-day basis um, even outside of like that that darker moment that uh, Doc Hayward was having, but just throughout the episode as a whole, just her extra extracurricular activities. Yeah, she was and, busy. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> and then it, it also sort of uh, touches upon uh, Ronette's uh, narrative as well, how she was in the exact same train car and was probably subjected to all of those same things that happened to Laura and how she probably isn't able to talk to anyone because of like all of these uh, just because of like the severe head injury that she had as well as the psychological impact that this had on her well-being so it's it's planting more and more seeds for us to check in on much later on down the series if if we're given more screen time with them, uh, as we'll soon see. And then we transition into Leo and Shelley's lives. And 
What what are your initial impressions of Leo's character? He He's uh I don't know. He's not like your maybe because it's the 80s 90s. But like I don't envision him as like your typical like abusive trucker husband right away when you see him like with the long hair and all that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's like it's a it's like scarily believable his his mannerisms and his his abuse it feels it, it feels complete not completely grounded but it feels uh cons- every scene is like almost concerning like you you can feel Shelly on eggshells and you can feel his his methods are like almost juvenile and like just like school bully like turned up like he was like the school you could just you could just envision like he was a school bully like a more conventional one and he just like grew up into this abusive guy and he's just yeah and you can just feel the tension constantly between them yeah he he almost seems like he has uh like cat-like qualities or like some sort of feline qualities in the way that he antagonizes uh, his prey. Um, he definitely toys with them. He pu- he places them in a corner without like no room to like get out of the situation. And he, I, I oh gosh, it, it's so it's so uncomfortable at times, and it just makes me feel for Shelley as. Like, I, I just really empathize with her and the fact that she has to not only live with this person, but basically build her entire time schedule around Leo's rules. Um, whenever she is not in a certain place at a certain time, he gets upset. And he basically dictates to her when and where she's supposed to be and what she's supposed to be doing. And if she has like any sort of like failings or anything he takes it out on her and he like even when he's telling her to do his laundry he like throws it at her and like he's like no you haven't gotten it all and like he's he just is very patronizing and is dishing up conflict between the two so that way he can lash out at her even further and to to basically like keep her in check and that's a great that that laundry one just it's a great that's a great little, uh, cause she's like literally on the way out the door to work. She's like, yeah, she's, she's ready to go to the diner. And then he's doing like, like you said, like he's not, he's like a cat toying with her or he's like, oh, like, do you do all the laundry? Like you can't go until you do all the laundry. And then she's like, yeah, I did. And yeah, she did. And then he's like, oh, not the ones I hid right here. Just, yeah, you can't go to work. I'm saying you can't go because you got to do this launch. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's it's so domineering. And I I wonder uh, like if uh, anyways, uh, we get a, a very telling moment. Once Shelly does start to do Leo's laundry, we get a glimpse at one of Leo's shirts that happens to have a large blood stain on it. And what does she do? She hides it away in a drawer while continuing to do the laundry just as Leo is creeping around the corner again, wanting to check in on her and, you know, keep her in his sight at all times. 
and it, it, it feels very dystopian in a way of having like this looming eye just constantly watching you uh, even even in like the sanctity of like your own home it, it's it's so telling of like what their what their personal life looks like uh, outside of the show and it's sort of uh, painting Leo as a potential suspect in a way you know as we're you know going about solving who killed Laura and I like, I like uh I like Shelly hiding the shirt because like you've mentioned all the the dynamics of the relationship like her hiding the shirt it's a great moment of like she's uh she's rebelling she she has her plans she she's working an angle to hopefully get out and I'm you're pretty quick to root for her. at least mm-hmm. I am like let's go Shelly yeah, Shelley is is a very great character. Um, I I also no, that's a very good way of putting like her actions as as a form of rebellion because it absolutely is, and it shows that she can be backed into the corner, but is willing to set herself up for success later on down the road, if it means permanently escaping the grasp of this very violent and fuming figure that that is fit that is leo um and we get back to sort of the interview process with james uh who is arrested and was basically saying like how laura wanted to keep it a secret that she was doing cocaine and that she had quit for a while but ended up getting back on to that bad habit um and and then we uh get back to Bobby and Mike who are still sitting in the cell and it's it's slowly revealed that they are somehow linked with Leo in that they owe him a bunch of money and how Leo is probably actually looking for them but is unable to find them because they've been in a cell for the past, uh, I want to say like 12 hours, maybe, maybe longer than that. Yeah, it has not much time has has, has happened between the first episode and, and this episode. I want to say it's been like eight hours, maybe. Um, yeah, and and they had a long night the in the previous episode. Um, and we get like the more of the dynamics between Bobby and Mike and how Mike is sort of the muscle whereas Bobby is the 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 mind of the two but isn't afraid to to lash out um and then we we get some some more coverage of Donna who is having a conversation with her mom and it's revealed that Donna has been sleepwalking and is crying in her sleep as well and there's this brilliant moment of dialogue that she has like revealing like these very deep innermost thoughts to her mother where she's sort of lamenting the fact that she isn't as sad as she was expecting to be and she goes on to say that it's like she's living the most beautiful dream and the most terrible nightmare all at once and it's like that's 
Lynch has like such a way with describing these very beautiful thoughts, but also ambivalent at the same time in the most simple way possible. And it's just, it's this is like one of those brilliant moments of it shining through. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah. There's a lot of you can have like a negative reaction to James and Donna hooking up so soon. As in, like, the day of finding out Laura's died or been brutally murdered. But, uh, this scene right here just makes it completely believable. It makes it, like, uh, yeah, like, it, it's like a great psychological window. As well as with the sleepwalking aspect, which is something I was like, I wonder if, I wonder if there was more planned for that down the line that they just kind of didn't go back to. But yeah, like, Donna's description of how she's feeling where she's like oh like yeah it's the beautiful dream she's oh she's she believes she's found love in james but also the worst nightmare it's like oh i'm horribly sad and guilty about her best friend being brutally murdered it's yeah it's it it makes it completely justifies so flawlessly their actions it makes them endearing like oh she's conflicted it's, it's, yeah, there's an internal turmoil that we don't get to see because we're not her. And she doesn't just say it directly to the camera, but she does kind of say it to us through talking to her mother. And it's it's and like you said, it's just written so well. And it's so believable and the way the sentimentality in it, it just comes across. I really enjoy. I really enjoy this scene just for that fact of if it wasn't there, the show would be not the show, but like I'd, I wouldn't like James as much as I do, which isn't that much right now. <laughs> <laughs> I like James, but he's not top five. He's far from mm. top five characters. Mm. I don't and I, I also love in the conversation how non-judgmental Eileen is towards her daughter. Um, and I, the entire Hayward family is just so, I love their fine, their family dynamic that they have where they don't necessarily judge each other and that they're just completely, they, they just have a completely unconditional love for one another and understanding. And I also really enjoyed how we get a little bit more backstory behind what Laura or why Laura was attracted to James because we we know that Laura was with Bobby uh, for quite a long time and then she was sort of oh no she was cheating on him with with uh, Bobby or no with James sorry and and Donna really you could tell that she's being completely authentic in saying that you know she was very happy for Laura because James was helping to reel her in from these very self-destructive tendencies and how uh once she passed away like she realized that that entire time was basically allowing or it was building up to donna and james falling in love with one another and that there can be some beauty found in the death of laura because even though one door has been closed permanently, it's allowed another one to continue on in her memory. And then uh, 
as we transition back to the sheriff's department, once James is uh, released, we get a bit of dialogue between Big Ed, Hurley, and uh, Truman. And <laughs> it's like a nice little jab between the two of them, where uh, they're sort of talking about the night before when uh, Ed and Norma were at the roadhouse, and that fight erupted with Bobby... Mike and uh, the rest of James's group of friends. Uh, Truman was saying like how he know <laughs> how he was uh, wondering uh, at the bandage on Ed's head and said, oh, I thought that, you know, that might have been Nadine finding out about you and Norma. <laughs> and I just love that little jab that he has at Ed. And you could tell that there's like a, a, a deep friendship between the two. And Ed, Ed to me is one of, he's just such a comforting character to have. Like whenever you, whenever I see him on screen, I just feel like this warmth and comfort just exuding from him. And he's like this very patient male role model that I absolutely love. And you could tell that he's just trying to find love for himself in this very toxic and a disruptive relationship that he's allowed himself to fall into and it isn't healthy the way that he's going about it uh, seeing Norma on the side but we definitely feel some sort of compassion and empathy towards him and he also reveals that uh, once he was in the fight he didn't even feel himself get knocked out and he suspects that his that his drink may have been spiked and then we are introduced to a character by the name of Jacques Renault, who was tending bar that night. And it's sort of planting yet another seed for us to potentially come back to. Even though we we don't have we don't know who this person looks like, but the name is there. I like and, when we'll eventually wait, get to all the J's. <laughs> there's, there's been a couple J's introduced. Oh yes. Even oh yeah. Wait, what were you saying, Pat? Even when you don't expect, because their first name doesn't start with J. Yeah, you're right, because uh, it's going back to that uh, diary entry that Laura had where she said that she's nervous about meeting J tonight. Mm -hmm. So it's, once again, like you said, yet another J. Um, oh, uh, one other little touch that I really enjoyed from the scene was when... Uh, when Hawk is releasing James, he sort of gives Ed a sign, and it's like he he makes a motion beneath his eye with his index finger, and then Ed does the same thing. And <laughs> this is the first of the Bookhouse Boys, and it's like, oh, what's what's this? Uh, it's so you could tell that there's a bit of com camaraderie. Uh, among the sheriff's department along with some community members. So I guess that we'll, we might find out a bit about that later. Okay. And uh, we transition to the to the Packard mill. And I... Wait, is, is Truman and Cooper interviewing Josie at this point again? Or am I wrong on that? Uh... I want to say that's not that's at Josie's house. Oh, okay. Because um, it's revealed that Laura was helping Josie with uh with English. Yeah, that's and, at Josie. 
and Pete's mm. there. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. And then um, we get yet another brilliant moment of dialogue once uh, Pete is preparing coffee for everyone and he asks how Cooper likes it. And then he says, I like it uh, like as black as midnight on a moonless night. A great little, yeah. Great line. There's, there's a lot of iconic lines. <laughs> yeah. And then it's uh, followed up by yet another iconic line by Pete this time around, where he storms in and tells everyone not to drink the coffee because there's a fish in the percolator. <laughs> Such a, yeah, because he's like, isn't he? He's gutting a fish, I think, in the kitchen. <laughs> and then it somehow ends up inside of the percolator. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like absent-minded or like an absent-minded flub because he's like seeing, he's seeing these two, this young FBI agent and the sheriff flirting with Josie a little bit and go on. Pete, Pete has an admiration, clearly, for Josie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's like a pure it's one. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, it's like completely platonic. And we get that little bit of a of dialogue between the two where she's thanking Pete for standing up for her uh, when Catherine was sort of grilling into her in the previous episode. And he just says Catherine was wrong, period. And he it just goes to show how upstanding he is because uh, like sometimes in relationships, there can be like sort this sort of unspoken agreement where both parties support each other regardless of who is wrong or right. And to me, I feel like that is very problematic uh, at times. Um, like I, I feel like if you're if you're in the wrong, you need to accept when you're wrong, and I don't know, and just move on from that. And it shows that Pete has that that mentality. And I, you know, it could also be that Catherine was the one who tossed the fish inside the percolator because later on she's grilling into Josie again about how much it cost them uh, for her shutting down the mill that day in respect to the worker of a, I, I think it was Ronette's father who worked there. Yeah. Yeah. And she says, oh, you know, the mill lost 87,000 that day. And then um, we also get into like another scene with Ben and Catherine, we find out are sort of secretive lovers, even though Catherine is supposed to be with Pete. And it shows how dismissive Ben is of Catherine at first, of how he's like wanting to like leave already, you know, after they've had like this, this moment of intimacy with each other, but then he's drawn back into her. It's like, it, yeah, it, yeah, he gives, it's, it's well written where it feels like their relationship has become just business. And then so mm -hmm. you think like, oh, this like he's clearly not emotionally invested anymore. And then she reels him back in. It's like, oh, no, I can see why this whole thing started now. Mm -hmm. We don't have to see them first start planning and plotting and building their relationship secretly for dastardly plans. Just that little moment of like he's already disinterested and like I'm leaving or I got business to do. This is this is an emotional investment. And then she says like, oh, it used to be different at the start. And then she reels him in again. And I was like, oh, okay, that's how it was at the start. It's yeah, yeah. I, right I really when... admire the the execution on this rewatch of just 
just communication. I think it's 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 really for the time, especially. There's just no there's no like dead there's no like completely dead and annoying moments. Mm -hmm. Everything communicates something, and you're if if you're receptive to it, you'll pick it up. And on your third or fourth viewing, like me, uh, I'm just I'm able to appreciate what they're putting down a little more each time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a really nice glimpse into what sort of their their meeting point is for love language. Like to me, it seems like they have sort of a like a quality time uh, aspect to it all where they have to have some sort of long stretching goal in mind to work towards together in order to have some sense of like intimacy with one another. And unfortunately, it's in the guise of potentially burning down the Packard Mill. That way, Ben and Catherine can purchase the land or do whatever they want with it. I, I love it's a perfect cover too. Mm -hmm. like, oh, we're not we're not planning to burn down a large financial institution of the city. <laughs> that like yeah, we're not planning this economic and all this devastation to the local community for financial exploitation and land buying. We're just having an affair, people. It's like, even their, yeah, it's like, it's a great little, yeah, it's a great little, like, they've thought it through, it feels like, like, yeah. Their affair mm -hmm. could be natural, but also it's, it's, it's the perfect cover. People get suspicious and start, like, oh, like, it looks like you guys did a backroom deal. Were you meeting and talking about it? It's like, no, we're just having an affair. <laughs> we're just, yeah. <laughs> And then uh, we transition into the scene where Donna goes to visit Sarah at the Palmer residence. And we get the sense that Sarah is still in a very vulnerable state, as is as completely understandable. Um, however, once she's sitting down with with Donna, they both reveal how much they, you know, they genuinely miss Laura and then this, to me, is where the show starts to really open up into a very surreal and abstract environment. Uh, it, it sort of like sets the tone going forward where Sarah ends up seeing the visage of Laura kind of superimposed over Donna's face. And she ends up, you know, having like this it's almost like seeing somebody in a dream that you haven't seen in months or years and then all of a sudden it's immediately offset by this really menacing figure who was staring up at her from below and she just immediately shrieks for Leland and is just completely thrown off you know wondering who this person is yeah great a great little a great scene, a great shock, a great what the hell was that? Yeah, I ended up. Was that? <laughs> I I, I rewatched that part. I want to say like six times, <laughs> just just to like really, just a, just in pure admiration of like that reveal. Uh, it comes out of nowhere, but it seems so fluid, and and then after that, we end up going back to the hospital 
where, you know what, we didn't touch upon this in the first episode, but when Cooper and Truman are first coming out of the elevator, there is a one-armed man who is in front of them that ends up leaving. But he reappears in this episode in a much more substantial way. We see him going down sort of into the morgue area when Hawk is questioning some parents. Uh, and he ends up trying to follow this one-armed person but loses track of them. And it's kind of like a, huh, like that's interesting that this is reappearing again. Um, I, th I think Hawk notices him because Hawk's talking to the Plans Plansky parents. Mm -hmm. And like Ronette's in the background, comatose still. And I think Hawk like notices in like one of those corner mirrors, maybe. Mm -hmm. That like the one-armed guy that like stopped for a second. Like his... Uh, it's like not explicit, but like maybe who's going to see check on Ronette or for some reason he's stopping by and then like he's he's there. And then when Hawk's there, he like decides he's going to the morgue. It's the vibe I got every time. That's why Hawk like feels something's off and then follows him. Yeah, I'm, I'm really. Wait, what would you say? But then Hawk gives up the pursuit in that moment because like it's not concrete. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just like it could just be like someone who's like, oh, damn, that's the girl who's, you know, with the Laura Palmer, Laura Palmer murder. Like, oh, that was the girl who was also a victim. You mm -hmm. could just be like, oh, that's the, you know, like. Like looking at the situation from like a bystander, you could just be a bystander in that moment. So, like, yeah, it's completely mm -hmm. believable. Yeah, I, I really enjoy the amount of screen time that Hawk is getting in this episode because he's just such a... He is like such an alluring, uh, charismatic personality, even though he doesn't say too much, but he has like also a deep-set intuition within him to seek things out. And after this scene, we go back to the Great Northern, and then this iconic moment where it's Audrey's dance... Um, set to the the jazz score once again with the horns and it's just such an an iconic moment in the series and yeah there's so many brilliant moments sprinkled throughout this episode but um we also get this very dark and this very dark glimpse into the relationship between Audrey and Ben where Ben's sort of like uh grilling her about you know, spoiling the business deal that was going to happen between him on the Ghostwood project. And he delivers this really bitter line towards her saying, you know, Laura died two days ago and I lost you years ago. And it just really sets the tone for what to expect going forward between those two and what sort of a conflict might arise. And outside of that, we... Uh, find out that Laura was tutoring Audrey's brother, Johnny, uh, as well, and um, how she was also providing meals on wheels, uh, which is where she goes to the, the r and diner to pick up food and deliver them to people. So once again, she was a very, very busy individual. Um, a lot of characters were being mm -hmm. insane. Yep. And then we go back to Leo and Shelly's residence where Leo suspects that something's off. He, he notices that Shelly slipped up because he can't find his, his one of his shirts. 
So what does he do? He waits for her to get home and then puts that soap inside of a sock because he knows he is going to beat her later. And he starts off by just sort of toying with her saying, hey, Shelly, uh, where's my shirt? And then he, sense that some, he senses that something is amiss. And then he has no mercy, no mercy when it comes to dealing with, with Shelly. And it's, once again, such a, such a dark moment where she's just seen cowering in the corner of this sort of half-renovated home. And it, it's just something so sterile but alienating about that environment. And... Yeah, it really sets Leo up to be this very menacing character. Um, it's great. And then, great wait, what were you saying? Design. Great interior design and communication. Mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, at the, the wait, no, go for it. Like the the Johnson household is like it's 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 not even finished. It's not. Yeah, it's not like a it's not like a Hayward house where it looks old and. It's two stories and it's in a nice neighborhood. No, mm -hmm. Leo's is like kind of on a plot. It looks a bit self-made and it's not even finished. It's in, yeah, it looks like it's never going to be completed is the feeling you get. Just like the relationship probably is never going to work out because, again, he's abusive. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then uh, there, there was also a little moment at the beginning, too, where we see him cutting open footballs and oddly enough and it's kind of like huh what is he doing there and then he ends up hiding it uh atop the cupboard before Shelly comes in so it's like there's there's still mystery surrounding the johnson household um and then we end up finding like there's more and more connections between james donna bobby and mike when it comes to leo um but then afterwards, we we end on a scene that is very... I remember when I first saw this, this was very disconcerting to me and almost intrusive and so voyeuristic where uh, we, we go back to Jacoby's office, who was Laura's psychiatrist or psychologist. I'm, I can't remember which one, but he ends up playing a, an audio diary that Laura was instructed to give to him during their like sessions where she talks about how in love she is with James, but he's just so dumb and how she just knows that she's going to get lost in those woods again. And Jacoby is like sort of setting, sitting inside of like this weird chair, like hammock, some like type thing in front of like a Hawaiian background. And he opens up a coconut shell and reveals that he has the other half of the heart necklace and it's very to me it screams like predatory and sort of like perverted that he's like even engaging with this diary while holding up this other half no yeah it's great he he is not liked he is not liked especially he was not liked by me jacoby at the start mm-hmm and uh, yeah, it's just a great little, uh, a great ending to leave some. It's like a cliffhanger, but it's not as much as the first episode where it's like a, an unseen gloved hand grabs the locket. It's like directly connected to Laura's murder. And this one, it reveals who has it. But yeah, it's just and then 
the audio diary where Laura's like showing another side of herself in relation to her and James' relationship. It's like, oh, we're, we, we, it, it, it makes you feel like there's still a lot more to learn about Laura, about her connections, her relationships, the whole town. And yeah, it's just like another hook. And then, yeah. I, I got the, I got like the predatory vibe from Jacoby, but also it's like pathetic in the scene because like, I don't know, from the start, especially with the how she's talking about James in that diary. I think she references a relationship with Jacoby in that one even, if I'm correct. I'm having mm -hmm. a hard time remembering now. But yeah, like I've, it's predatory of Jacoby, but then like when he starts crying, as like, oh, it's like, it's pathetic. I'm like, oh, he's, he was probably just like, manip not manipulated, but like he was probably just like a, a small part like she was not <laughs> like he was just living vicariously through her her or life like she, in a way or like she was not invested or he was not like yeah he was not like a large part he's he's he was like just a, a minor character in her life <laughs> yeah but he like he cares so much and yeah that's yeah you deserve it a little bit because you mm -hmm. are violating a lot of stuff you do deserve the pain you're feeling right now. And, uh, yeah. I think it's predatory of him, but, like, it's quickly subverted in that, like, how nothing <laughs> parts of their relationship probably were, or feels from the outside. Like, it was, he wasn't a James. Mm -hmm. Even though she's, like, disparaging James in the recording. She's like, what does she have to say about Jacoby? Like, oh, you're smarter? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I think James is like un unquestionable love for Laura is more important than you being smarter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. I also I also really like how uh the episode title Traces to Nowhere is very fitting for this episode. Uh I know that that seems like very topical. However, it's it just it's very in tune with the feel of this episode in that we're sort of getting all the traces of what this town is building up to be but it doesn't necessarily lead to anything uh in in a plot you know in relation to plot uh all it does is sort of like i i feel like this episode was a a major building point in terms of uh building up context personalities but it doesn't feel like that in a very rushed or in a very uh, unsubstantial way it seems like there's a lot of weight to this episode and purely for just existing as a viewer in this town for just a little bit longer to build up your own connections to everyone, I think that it is an absolutely vital episode. Um, and it's just stringing us along even more and more without giving us any sort of answers. Yeah, it's, a, it's a perfect name where, yeah, it's like, it's a bit, of, it's about the investigation, but it's also about our engagement in the series and characters of like I don't think Ed and Norma's dynamic is connected to Laura Palmer's murder mm -hmm. but I, we're on that trace we're on that track that's that's the development Audrey I'm not I don't see a direct line but we're on that track and then it feels reflective of the whole investigation process for like Cooper and Truman where they're you know, they're finding out stuff, they know stuff on the side of people's lives and interactions, but 
it does all lead directly to the, the murder case. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they do. We don't know. Yeah, it's just all portions of a larger picture that is completely obscured and nobody knows what the what the edges or the border looks like or where it even ends. But um yeah, with that said, uh thank you for if you've listened this far, thank you so much for joining us in on with on this discussion and we're going to keep this series going for the rest of season 1. Uh, so you can expect episode 3 coming soon. If you like what you hear and you want to stay up to date with what we're doing, you can follow us on our Instagram. It's at layfilmpodcast. Or if you want to share your own theories, your own thoughts, or even just like talk about previous uh, installments that we've had that don't even relate to the show, or if they do relate to the show, feel free to do so by sending us uh, some words at uh, through our email at layfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Um, thank you, Pat, for, you know, hanging out with me talking about the show don't don't ever thank me for hanging out with you (laughs) (laughs) we're we're friends right yeah yeah we're friends okay (laughs) you better believe it buddy (laughs) yeah don't uh, thank me i love hanging out all right cool well uh thank you all for listening and uh hope you have a great day and stay tuned hey three for three sheriff Let's get James Hurley up from cell four and talk to him straight. He was in love with Laura Palmer. My bet is she told him whatever dirt she knew about Mike and Bobby and who knows what else. Then let's have a little chat with those two perpetrators. Let's also run a top to bottom on Bobby's vehicle, see what that brings us. We'll also check on the autopsy on Laura Palmer and see what that brings in. Oh, we're also gonna wanna talk to Mr. and Mrs. Palmer, but let's give them a few days to deal with their grief. Now, I've got the rest of our day mapped out. Let's meet back here in three minutes. Harry, I really have to urinate. Oh, by the way, coffee at the Great Northern? Incredible.